Welcome, welcome, welcome to Islam for Christians. This is episode 86, Quran, Surah 95, At-Tin, The Fig. By the fig and the olive, by Mount Sinai, and by this land made safe. Surely we created man of the best stature. Then we reduced him to the lowest of the low, save those who believe and do good works. And theirs is a reward unfailing. So who henceforth will give the lie to you about the judgment? Is not Allah the most conclusive of all judges? That was the Marmaduke Pickthall translation. But because these translations, particularly for this one, they can vary significantly, I'm going to read it once more. And this will be the Mustafa Kitab version. By the fig and the olive of Jerusalem and Mount Sinai and the secure city of Mecca, indeed, we created humans in the best form but we will reduce them to the lowest of the low in hell, except those who believe and do good. They will have a never-ending reward. Now, what makes you deny the final judgment? Is Allah not the most just of all judges? And now the Arabic, as recited by Saad al-Ghamdi. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والتين والزيتون وطور سينين وهذا البلد الأمين لقد خلقنا الإنسان في أحسن تقويم ثم رددناه أسفل سافلين all right so we have a poetic and a mysterious introduction and that sets the allegorical table for what is to come, which is the idea that man was created good, but at the same time, man is also capable of being the lowest of creatures. Brought lowly, mainly by not listening to the things mentioned in the opening part of this surah. And more on what that means later. We'll get to those things, I promise. You know, and it says people can avoid being in a lowly state with, with what? Faith and good works. And who will judge if you have faith and good works? Well, God will be the judge on the day of judgment. So here we have a very normal Quranic theme. It's very very Islamic. It's a similar refrain to what you're going to hear over and over and over again. And that is, believe in God and be good. But what sets this surah apart in so many ways is how this message is set up with the first three poetic, mysterious lines. They're three lines that sound like they're being offered as proof 
of all the lines that are to come. You know, the first three lines are proof of the sermon to come. It's the source of the principles in the short sermon to come. And it's the reason why you should believe what is written or spoken after all of that. I guess what I'm saying is it's the first three lines that are the most unique, most important part of this surah. So let's look into that. What do these first three lines mean? By the fig and the olive, by Mount Sinai, and by this land made safe. Or in the other reading I gave you, by the fig and the olive of Jerusalem and Mount Sinai, and this secure city of Mecca. See the difference. You see how some translators just went ahead and translated direct place names <laughs> instead of printing the metaphor. And that actually makes sense because, you know, Mount Sinai, I should note, is actually named in the Arabic text, but that's the only one. And that Mount Sinai mention is kind of like the key that picks the lock to the whole thing. We'll get into that. And that also gives you a hint that, hey, you know what? We're talking about actual places here, I think. Um, so you have varying translations. Some people complete the metaphor for you. You know, some are less confident in that. You know, th they're both correct. But let me just give you how those three lines would read in the most literal sense. Like, Looking at the Arabic, what does it say? By the fig and the olive, and Mount Sinai, and this secure city. Now, the natural thing when looking at those three lines is to zoom in on the second one, which is pretty much what usually happens when you look at commentary of this. Because... Like I said, that's the one proper name there that can give you some hint as to what these other things mean. Because everyone knows why Mount Sinai is significant. Mount Sinai has never meant anything other than the place where Moses was given the law. So you have to think, well, according to Islam, what were the other places where the law was given? Well, most obviously, that would be the secure city, Mecca. The Quran is saying this city, the place the surah is addressing, which at the time is Mecca. Mecca is secure. It is the secure city because of its religious significance and its respected place among the Arabs. No Arab would dare to attack Mecca or to shed its blood at times when it was forbidden to do so. So we have two proper names we can be almost 100% sure about. Sinai in the second line, and in the third line, Mecca, the secure city. So what about that first line, though? The fig and the olive. What are those things? Well, we know what they are, but what do they mean? Let's do olive first. Sometimes this is associated with Jerusalem, the olive is. As you saw um, in the Mustafa Kitab version, he just went ahead and said it. Now, why did he do that? Well, the theory is it could be the Mount of Olives 
which is where Jesus actually addressed the same theme as this Sora, the final judgment, or at least the apocalyptic end. In Jesus's case, specifically, he was talking about the destruction of the temple. This was in Matthew 24, the first few verses. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, that's the important part, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? So this idea of the olive representing Jerusalem actually makes a lot of sense. Because as far as Muslims know, there are three definite places where, for sure, God gave his law to the people. That would be Moses at Sinai, Jesus in Jerusalem, and Muhammad in Mecca. So before talking about the nature of man and the judgment to come, what this is, these first three lines, this is a statement of authority, of how we know this. How do we know this is true? The Torah, the Gospel, the Quran. And that all fits pretty neatly, very neatly. But it's not quite that simple, because we still have the problem of the fig. There are four elements here, not three. So what about the fig? What does the fig represent? Before we go into the popular theories about what that represents, um, I want to give you a very boring theory, a very unappealing, unsexy theory, uh, one that you really won't see in any Quranic commentary. Now, I'm not saying this is for sure correct, but it's something we have to keep in mind when we're reading the Quran. And again, this kind of thing is not said mainly because again, it's no fun and it cuts against the sentiment one tends to have when reading a religious text, but it would be irresponsible to ignore the simplest explanation and at least just keep it in mind as a possibility. So what am I talking about? Why was this written this way or said this way? these first three lines, why these specific words? Why were they chosen? What I'm saying is the answer might be simpler than you think, in that the words used for fig and olive and Sinai and secure city, they all have similar endings and thus fit into the rhyme scheme. Sometimes it might be that simple fig and olive and Sinai and the adjective that comes at the end that links together the Arabic phrase secure city. They rhyme. So the rhyme scheme, particularly in the early surahs, you always have to keep that in mind. Some of the Quran's word choice is simply to sound good, to fit the rhyme scheme, not necessarily for precision. <laughs> you know, this isn't a scientific manual. This is poetry. And that's an interesting thing to keep in mind. But even if that were true, though, let's <laughs> move on. There has to be something to these words. 
this isn't a modern pop song. This isn't just spewing random sounds because they're pleasing to the ear. If that were the case, who would have followed Muhammad? I mean, nobody. So at minimum, the words have to be related in some way. And it could be just as simple as being things that sustain people. Keep in mind, this is food, you know, olive, fig. So food, the law and security. But then what, you know, if that were the case, what would you make of the later lines? Now, by that, I mean, you know, line three, the olive, the fig would be food, which is an important thing. Sinai would be the law, which is an important thing. And Mecca would be security, which is an important thing. But then what would you make about the later lines? You know, the odds of something deeper are always there, especially in a religious text like this. The Quran doesn't make use of story nearly as often as the Bible, but it is full of symbolism and allegory, poetic tools that are often vital in explaining the unexplainable. And of course, what is more unexplainable than God? So it's always natural to kind of take the next step, right? So let's take that next step. For the most part, I've seen three explanations for what the fig represents. And I want to share those with you. So this is the, the fourth element, the final element of this whole thing. Now, there are thousands of interpretations, but I just want to share the big three here, either because uh, they're the most popular or I think they're the most relevant or the most thought provoking. I've seen some other interesting takes. Uh, like the fig is the Mosaic law and the olive is Islamic law because Jesus once cursed a fig tree. And some could take that to mean the end of Mosaic law or the centrality of the Hebrew people in God's revelations. In other words, the Hebrews are out, the Arabs are in. <laughs> you know, or less diplomatic words, you know, God's abandoning the Jews. I've seen that. And then basically postulating from this that a new universal law is coming to be, Islamic law because olives grow everywhere. Um, at least that's the explanation. Although I don't think that's true. Olives don't grow where I live, I don't think. I'm pretty sure you need a Mediterranean climate for olives. Um, so that one, for instance, is an explanation that did not make the cut. All right, so here are my top three explanations of the fig. It's more of a top two and a half, really. The, the first two are the strongest by far. The third is something I just think is kind of interesting. <laughs> more so interesting than likely to be true. All right. So the first explanation of the fig. It's that the fig is mankind. It's people. Because the fig, in its wild form, is not something that's terribly useful. Only when the fig is cultivated does it actually become something of substance, which is a pretty good allegory for our species. At least, I think it is. You know, I have to take the word of some smart people on this one because I don't really know precisely what constitutes a fig. You know, It's one of those plants people on my side of the world just aren't really all that familiar with. If not for religion, I'm not sure I'd even know what a fig was. 
Um, but based on what I've looked up, it seems to be a fruit that maybe has a shell that's really hard. But let's not focus on the plant. Um, you know, I'm fig ignorant. I just think I owe you that. You know, so let's just run with this allegory, with this metaphor. The proposition that it takes a great deal of human intervention to be any good. You know, to be like a fig, to be made into something of use. Because humans must be curated. That is what makes us so unique in the animal kingdom. A human doesn't have an, an instinctive, natural way or a natural habitat. Um, I'm not talking about instinctive longing for God or anything that would be an exception, but we just don't have a natural home, a natural shelter, a natural anything. Our natural state is the unnatural. Our natural habitat is whatever we create with our opposable thumbs and oversized brains. And our superpower is our intellect, much more so than our frail, relatively weak, and completely exposed physical bodies, which are terribly inefficient and need tons of food. So without learning, a human is as useless as a raw fig, or so I'm told. So if people are the fig, then, you know, this, the rest of the Sora based on that is going on to talk about the sources of spiritual nourishment for the human figs, which are the revelations of God. This is what ultimately curates the figs and keeps them from becoming the lowest of the low. So that's number one. Here's number two. Take number two is that the fig and the olive should be thought about as one, as a single geographic area, not as a specific kind of food. Now, where would that area be? It would be the Eastern Mediterranean, where both of those things grow, which is the place not only of Jesus, but also of the Old Testament prophets like Abraham, or even Adam, who you may remember from the Bible, used fig leaves for clothing. From this perspective, you see three lines, right? So logically, we're talking about three places. The reasoning would be basically Old Israel, one, Mount Sinai, two, and Mecca, three. It's giving the authority of the truths to follow, but also the unity of those truths that were told in all these places. So basically, the fig is everyone before Jesus. The olive is Jesus. Mount Sinai is Moses. And Mecca is, of course, Muhammad. Now, if you can follow that, <laughs> you may have to listen to that a few times. You know, I'll, I'll repeat it. Basically, the fig is everyone before Jesus. The olive is Jesus. Mount Sinai is Moses. And Mecca is Muhammad. That's pretty good. <laughs> that makes a ton of sense, doesn't it? So then we have number three. This would be the interesting take that I promise you. <laughs> and if there are any religious universalists out there listening, I'm sure there's a few, you're going to love this one. Some have supposed that 
yes, the olive is Jesus and Christianity. Sinai is Judaism. Mecca is Islam. But the fig? Well, the fig, the fourth one, that's actually Buddhism, which comes from Hinduism, sort of, which together basically cover the entire Eastern religious traditions. <laughs> basically, this is a message that, hey, th this spans the entire world. Now, how would someone arrive at Buddhism from fig? Well, because the type of tree that Buddha sat under to achieve enlightenment was a type of fig tree. Interesting. <laughs> Very interesting, actually. Perhaps that's possible. Although you would definitely describe this as a fringe opinion, I should share, not to denigrate it or anything. It's fascinating. It's just not something you're going to see very often. But it does fit the narrative because we're talking about religious authority here. Because remember, the four elements of the first three lines are setting up the authority of the following sermon. So that works. You know, basically, it's citing the religious authority of the entire world to justify the sermon. On the other hand, it's not clear that the Arabs knew anything at all about religion to the east of Persia. I mean, maybe they did, you know, who's to say? So if that is the message, it's a hidden one. I don't think it's something that would ever have occurred to the earlier community. But if you were a Muslim later today, you could say, oh, well, that was just, that was God forecasting into the future. That's, Fascinating stuff, right? So this entire time, we've just been talking about the first three lines, which honestly are more interesting than what comes after them. But let's give a little respect to the rest here. Um, so let me just give you a refresher on what the last lines were, as you've forgotten. They are, surely we created man of the best stature. Then we reduced him to the lowest of the low, save those who believe and do good works. And theirs is a reward unfailing. So who henceforth will give the lie to you about the judgment? Is not Allah the most conclusive of all judges? So here with past revelations cited, now we're moving on to what is actually being said here. That man was created by God of the best form. The Arabic word here is taqweem, which can also mean a, a mold or a form, a, a nature, something like that. God created man of the best nature. Now remember, our state isn't God's fault in the Islamic telling, but this great nature can also be brought low, very low, the lowest of the low. But those who remain high and in their original God-given nature are believers who do good works. And given the authority being cited here, who is anyone to deny what is being said? That's the case being made. Who is anyone to deny the judgment? And is God not the greatest, most perfect of judges? In that last line, I read you the Marmaduke Pickthall version, which says, is not Allah the most conclusive of all judges? But I should note that is not the most common translation. Um, 
Pickthall, being Pickthall, <laughs> is a law the most conclusive of judges, whereas usually more common words are used instead of conclusive. You don't see that very often. You see words like just and wise and complete. You know, God is the most just. God is the most wise. God is the most complete. But Pickthall uses the word conclusive. Why is that? The Arabic phrase is Allah, the Hakim, al-Hakimin. And that means basically God is the most just of justices. It's almost a repeat of the same word. The root of both of those last words are Hakimah. So to pass judgment, something like that, it, it can mean many things. The modern Arabic dictionary literally has two pages of definitions for the verb form alone. It's a versatile word, thus the very wide range of opinions. Really, just pick anything related to justice. The wisest of judges, the most just of judges, or you could even give a proper name, Al-Hakam, one of the 99 names of God. So, out of all those options, how did Pickthall get conclusive? Now, I don't really know. And explanations are pretty hard to find. The Pickthall work is old and it's not footnoted. <laughs> he didn't give extensive explanations. So it's very, very hard to say for sure. But in this case, I think he's getting at the idea that the judgment of a law has the final word. It is just. Yes, of course it's just. You know, that's true by definition because it's coming from God, you know. But I think Pickthall is reaching back to those first three lines of the Sura and saying, listen, this is not only just, it is conclusive. How many times does God have to say it? He is the final judge. I think it was his way of using the literal text the most wise, the wisest, the wiser, to give the idea of the final authority of God and of the judgment, the one to trust. You need not trusting those who deny the final judgment, but the person, the, the person, the God, the being who actually conducts the final judgment in the end. So it actually ties to the previous text much more than simply saying God is the most just of justices. And part of that is the genius of Pickthall, who is just able to pull some of the poetry out of the Arabic and actually get a bunch of it into English. And as always, I'm not saying that those other interpretations are wrong. You know, it's not about right or wrong. It's about perspectives and interpretation of language and concepts and the mystery of the Quran, which can be frustrating sometimes, but really would you expect anything less from a great religion? The Apocalypse of John, for example, uh, in Revelation, it's not terribly clear either, but it's beautiful, isn't it? The same goes with the figs and the olives, whatever those might mean. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time, inshallah.
Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.